Amen. Thank you so much, music team. It's always so good to be here with you this morning and each and every Sunday morning to remember the resurrection really happened, to remember that we can be forgiven of our sins as these songs have reminded us of so beautifully this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning making our way through the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter six, and we'll be looking at verses one through 11. As you're finding that in your Bibles, just wanted to highlight one quick announcement. We do have an informational meeting coming up on October the 29th. So that's a fifth Sunday, and typically we don't have our equipping hour, nine o'clock session on those fifth Sundays. We take that one off and we have a lunch afterwards. That will be true um, of that week as well, but we are gonna have an informational meeting at nine o'clock in this room here. And what we're gonna be discussing, we're not voting on any Thing, but we're just gonna let you know some things that we've learned. We've been looking at some ways to upgrade our restrooms, both in this building and then the other building, our children's ministry building um, as well. And in the process, uh, create a lobby area out in front of the church here with a little covered area as well. And so we're gonna be sharing a little bit about what we've learned, um, prices, uh, we'll have some renderings to look at, things like that. It will, again, just be an informational meeting. Um, we are not asking for anything on that particular date, just want you to know. Uh, where we are and know that that process is going on. So make plans to attend. We'll start, um, we'll, we'll actually start that meeting about 9.15, give everybody a few minutes to get here. I should just tell you nine to make sure everybody's here because um, we're gonna start with some pictures. It starts at nine. I was just kidding. <clears throat> I was kidding. Um, it starts at nine. So we'll see you at nine o'clock on the 29th if you are interested in that. Well, we find ourselves again in the Gospel of Luke and we find ourselves in a series of controversy stories. Jesus had a number of conflicts with the religious leaders of his day, particularly with the Pharisees and also the scribes. They're noted a number of times for us throughout the Gospels, not just Luke's Gospel, but the other Gospel accounts as well. You'll remember that Luke is one of four Gospel accounts. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke is one of those accounts and they're all doing uh, very similar things, but slightly different things at the same time and drawing different emphasis and accents, if you will, as they tell the story of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Each of the gospels is arranged in a very intentional order. And if you take a closer look at the literature on that, uh, just the literary design of the gospels, we can note that they are telling a story and they're telling it with some artistic flavor. They're, they're using their own gifts, they're using their own abilities, and they're wanting you to get who was Jesus? And so what Luke has done here is he's given us a few what we could call controversy stories, and we're gonna look at the third and fourth of the controversy stories today. And so we see the healing of the paralytic man by Jesus, and in that, it's not just that he healed the man, it's that he told the man, your sins are forgiven. Well, that caused a little bit of a stir because obviously God is the only one who can forgive sins. And who is this guy who's walking around healing people and telling people on top of that, your sins are forgiven. You can't do that, Jesus. Then we have the calling of Levi. And Levi, Matthew, was the tax collector. And being a tax gatherer in that day was really synonymous with being a bad person, uh, to being a crook, to being dishonest. And not only that, he joins a party at Levi's house right after this, which causes a stir with the, uh, with the Pharisees and the scribes again. We looked at that last time. And now we see that he's gonna have a tension point again, stories three and four over the Sabbath. What is it that he's doing on the Sabbath and why does he not seem to observe the Sabbath like everybody else does? Jesus, what are you doing? Just fall in line with everybody else. 
we see that this controversy again is with the Pharisees and the scribes. And I wanna talk just for a moment about the Pharisees here. And these Pharisees, they were actually a group of lay people, so meaning they were not, uh, they were not temple employees, uh, they, weren't, um, they weren't priests, but they were teachers of the law. And they were really the ones who were responsible for what we could maybe call the orthodoxy of the day, the right teaching, controlling the teaching that was going out from the word of God, the Old Testament in particular. Jesus has a lot of conflicts with them, and we're gonna talk a lot about the Pharisees as we move through this. But from time to time, I actually might surprise you that I want to defend the Pharisees on a couple of points here. Now, this will be a short defense because there's plenty to go after, but let's just, let's just see and try to see things from their perspective. Jesus even said in Matthew 23, he said, you should do as the Pharisees say to do because they actually get it right sometimes, but don't live as they live. So Jesus noted that, and what brings me to say that is that here we have in our story today that it's some of the Pharisees have a problem. And I think Luke intentionally notes that for us in verse two. Some of the Pharisees said, so it's not all of them, some of the Pharisees. There's a story again in Luke 13 where Jesus is warned, actually, by some of the Pharisees, hey, you need to leave the area because Herod wants to kill you. And so they actually are going to the trouble of warning Jesus. And so we can't just look at them as if they're just this singular group, as if one represented the whole. That said, they had a very, very bad understanding of grace, and ultimately, on the whole, they reject the Messiah. And that's gonna be very, very clear as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke. So I wanna read our story for us, and then we're gonna take a little bit of time to understand what we're talking about when we read the Sabbath, and then we're gonna jump into the details of our story here. So the third and fourth controversy stories of Luke begins Luke chapter six and verse one. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? Or destroy it. And after looking around at them, all he said uh, at them all, he said to him, "Stretch out your hand." And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What an interesting series of stories we have. Jesus locking up with religious leaders over the issue of the Sabbath. So here's what we'll do this morning. We're gonna talk about the Sabbath in a general sense, and I wanna 
take a minute to look back at the Old Testament and talk about the Sabbath. I think we have to do that in order to understand this controversy even. Then we're gonna look at the two stories here where Jesus' disciples seem to violate the Sabbath and then Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And then we're gonna talk about, for us, what does it mean to observe and then apply the Sabbath? So that is the plan for today. So what is the deal with the Sabbath? If you've ever taken a little bit of a deep dive into the Sabbath in the Old Testament, what you'll find out is that the Sabbath is everywhere. All right, this is a deep study, it's extensive, there's a lot that you could look at. Even to this day, in Israel, the Sabbath is a massive, huge deal. The recent attacks uh, by Hamas, they happened when? On Shabbat, the Sabbath, the first day of the week, um, which we'll talk more about this, but strictly defined what we're talking about in the Sabbath in Israel, even still to this day, we're talking about sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So it's Saturday the day. That's when the attacks happen because people, for the most part, are observing the Sabbath at least to one degree or another. Um, there, there's not the readiness that you would get, say, on a Monday morning um, if you wanted to attack someone. So this is a huge deal. So there's two big reasons why we see the Sabbath being mentioned and observed in the Old Testament. This is part of the Ten Commandments. You'll remember this. And we see that the Sabbath, the reasoning given behind the Sabbath, is creation. Exodus 20 and verse 11 for in six days, the Lord, that's Yahweh, God, made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the command just before this was for Israel, you must observe the Sabbath, particularly as a day of rest. It's the stop working day. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Why? Because God rested on the Sabbath. So that's reason number one why the Sabbath was significant to Israel. It's a reminder of creation. It's a reminder that God rested. And so we are to work and rest just like the pattern of this creation week that we see in Genesis chapter one. The next one though, when the 10 commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy, this is interesting. The Sabbath command is repeated, but this time it's for a different purpose. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You say, well, which one is it? Is it because of creation or is it because of redemption? The answer class, yes, they're both true. We sometimes like to define ourselves so narrowly when we're answering biblical questions. They're actually both true. There's multiple motivations, and we'll see there's even another motivation here, which is not quite as clearly explicitly stated, but it, it served as a sign as well to the other nations. Who are these crazy people that only work six days a week? What's wrong with them? They, what, who are they? You know, your productivity is really getting cut by only working six days a week. There's actually evidence, and this is a little bit conjecture, so we're not totally sure that it worked this way, but there's actually evidence that there really wasn't a seven-day week until 
we have this codified into the law of Israel. So when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and he gave them the Sabbath command, there's actually evidence that would suggest that this is really when we got the idea of a seventh day, seven day week. Of course, we see that early in creation, but it wasn't practiced until in culture until then, which is quite possible that that's true. So this is a big deal. The Sabbath was a huge issue. It was a reminder of creation, a reminder of redemption, even in harvest season. Exodus 34, 21 says, and this is a repeat of the Sabbath command, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest. So even when you're really busy is what that means, you still have to rest on a day. It takes a lot of faith to stop working, doesn't it? Have any... Every head bowed, every eye closed. I see that hand. Yeah, it does. We're gonna, we're gonna get to you. We're gonna get to you later. And me as well. So this is a huge deal. It's a huge deal for them to actually stop working, even in the harvest. Every day counts in the harvest. Some of you grew up in agrarian societies. I have my friends out in Nebraska. I was totally fascinated listening to them tell their stories about harvest and I'm standing there in Nebraska with my friend and I look out and it's just cornfields as far as you can see, like literally as far as you can see, these rolling hills of corn and they're talking about the harvest and how it's just all hands on deck and people just come from all over the place and you're working 24 hours and they put up these massive lights and it's just, it's just all you do because you know corn, they, they have to harvest at a very specific time and it's just everybody's in. And I imagine it was that way somewhat in Israel as well. So you just go from this sunup to sundown pace and then the Sabbath hits and you're looking at the field. You're saying, huh, sure would be nice to get another day of work in. And the Lord said, no, even in harvest, you have to let it stop. You have to stop. So it's the rest day. Israel, of course, doesn't observe the Sabbath. They don't always observe the Sabbath, at least. They didn't observe the regulations regarding letting the fields lay fallow. They were supposed to plant for six years and let it lay, let it sit for a year. They didn't do this. And this ultimately leads to their conquer and captivity. So that happens. Jeremiah talks about that. Daniel knows that this restoration is coming. They finally get back to the land. This is where we have the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. And they get there and then some of them stop observing the Sabbath. Can you believe that? They just got back to the land. And then they start doing this again. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so they saw a very direct connection between Sabbath observation and the state of Israel at the moment. I was trying to think of a good illustration of, we all do this at some point or another. You do something and it gets you in trouble and then you go right back to that thing. Um, has anybody experienced that? I'm sure we all have at some level. So I asked our staff on our group text, I said, can you give me an example of somebody going right back to the same thing that you've always done, even though it got you in trouble? Leslie's response was classic. She said, any Sunday in the toddler room is pretty much. And then David sent me this, which I don't normally do little video clips in the sermon, but I thought this would be a useful tool to show you. So what we have here, I'll narrate as we move along. There's a sheep and it's stuck in this little crevice right here. 
And this nice man is so kind to pull it out, and it hops along. (laughs) And I think that's a picture of life, isn't it? This is Israel. If I had better better video skills, I would have labeled Israel not observing the Sabbath. Israel and deliverance, hop, 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 right back in the ditch. And so it shows us that this Sabbath observation, and again, if I may defend the Pharisees just for a moment here, the Sabbath observation was rightfully important, right? If you were convinced that the Roman occupation in the first century was due to Israel's lack of attention to detail over the Sabbath, you would be very concerned about that, wouldn't you? And so I think in that sense, the Pharisees are right. They're concerned about the right thing. Now, they get hung up on things that are wrong, and we'll see that. So, this concern for the Sabbath. They were very concerned. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the day, they came up, they said, okay, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so what is work? Define your terms. What do you mean by work? And they did. So they came up with a list of 39 things that constituted work on the Sabbath. Here they are, a very long list. I don't have time to read it all for you. So what does it mean to work? This is sort of like what we do with laws and things. We have something like the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's, you know, books, case law written, and there's all sorts of laws that flesh that principle out. So what does it mean not to work? Well, it's things like burning stuff, finishing things, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, and all these have specific uses. So these are the official rules of the day. We'll come back to that in a moment as well. So that's the history of the Sabbath. It's a long history. It's a very rich and full history, and it's a very important history for understanding this conversation. So you're in Israel in the first century. You think, at least part of your story, is that we're in a mess here. We've got this weird two-system government where the Romans are here, we're in our land, we kind of have our own laws, but kind of don't. And part of the reason is because people aren't paying attention to the Sabbath. And then you get Jesus and his crazy band of disciples walking through this field and they start eating grain on the Sabbath. Well, that's not gonna fly. You can't do that, Jesus. And so they call him out. So now the story, I think maybe will pop a little bit more as we look at it. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples, they plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now, what in the world is going on here? Why does Luke give us such weird detail? Isn't that kind of strange? I don't know if you've ever noticed that. His disciples, they, says they could have, he could have just said they ate some grain. And we would assume these other things, but he's, he actually goes into detail. He plucked, they plucked the grain, which constitutes reaping or harvesting. That was on the list of the 39. Violation number one, you're reaping. You're threshing, considered threshing when you rub the grain in your hands. So sort of like you take off the husk of a peanut when you eat it, uh, like a roasted peanut. You, you're, you're threshing, 
you're taking a winnowing, which was uh, the grain would be, uh, it would be tossed up in the air and there would be separation of the husk and the grain. So you're threshing, um, beating it on the ground, you're winnowing, that would be the removal of the husk. And then you're eating, you're preparing food and actually eating it. Um, you weren't supposed to prepare food, you were just supposed to eat the food. And so Luke is careful to tell us all these things. They took some heads of grain, they rubbed them in their hands, and so we have these four violations then of the Sabbath. And so they confront Jesus on this. Now, we should note, just to make sure we're clear, there was no prohibition necessarily against walking through the field and plucking some heads of grain. That was actually allowed, explicitly allowed, by a couple of different scriptures in the Old Testament. So they're fine with that part. You could, you could do that as a traveler. You could come through, and if there was a grain field, they were supposed to leave the edges for like a traveler or somebody that was needy. And so that was very normal to do. That wasn't the problem. The problem is the Sabbath. So Jesus says, he answered them, verse three. So the question, why are you doing what's not lawful? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. So he said, there's precedent actually for what I'm doing but you're not gonna like my description of how this goes. I wanna read you the story. If you'd like, I don't have this one on the screen for you, but if you'd like, you can turn to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. And the context for this is David is on the run. He's been anointed king, but he's not installed as the king yet. And so he's on the run from Saul, and he comes to Nob, and to Ahimelech, the priest. 1 Samuel 21 and verse one. I'll read verses one and two. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David, David, it looks suspicious. David is showing up there, he's by himself. He actually has people with him, but he approaches Ahimelech alone. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you. And with you, I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So he kind of plays it coy, like, ah, I'm on a special mission. Our modern day version of this would be, sorry, that's classified, Ahimelech. I'm, I'm on a mission. It's a very important mission. That's why I'm alone. I kind of have to keep this one under the vest. And I think what he's doing there is he's giving Ahimelech, the priest, sort of a plausible deniability in case this rolls back on him that he helped David, which becomes an issue later. So he goes up, speaks to him, and then this is the exchange. Verse three, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. I need some food. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. So uh, this holy bread, it was called the show bread, and it would work something like this. Um, each week, and this becomes significant actually, each week on the Sabbath, there was a new batch of bread that was put on this table, the show bread. And each one represents one of the tribes of Israel. So 12 new loaves that would be put, um, and it's called the show bread. And on the Sabbath, the priests were allowed to consume the showbread after it's been sitting. 
um, you know, like the week old Panera stuff we used to have, um, you know, after it sits for a while, uh, then you can have it. But that was open to anybody, not just the pastors um, here at the church. So it's uh, the showbread, it sits for a while. And I actually learned this in Uganda as well. I told you a lot about Ugandan food last week. Do you know that some cultures actually prefer dried bread? Some of you have lived in other places, you know that? They, 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 cook, they bake bread and then they let it sit out for a while because they prefer it very dry. We're the opposite, we like it fresh. So this isn't as bad as maybe it sounds uh, to them. So uh, Ahimelech tells him, um, I have this bread, but it's holy bread, the show bread. Only the priests are supposed to eat it. But as a concession, if your young man are ceremonially, ritually pure, then I'll share it with you. So David's response, David answered the priest, surely women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. So I'm, I'm on this special mission and yes, we are maintaining ritual ceremonial purity. The vessels of the young men are holy even as when an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy so that yes, we are ceremonially pure and clean. And then, so the priest, verse six, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence. It's the only bread that was available which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that's taken away, which would have been the Sabbath. So each Sabbath day, there's a new batch of showbread that was maintained and kept. So the precedent here is David and his men. So Jesus references this story, going back to Luke chapter six. Jesus references this story and says, you guys know that in your Old Testament, a story they would be very familiar with, there was a time when a concession was made and it seems like a rule of the Sabbath was bent just a little bit for the purpose of meeting a human need. The Sabbath is not created, the Sabbath was created for people. It was a concession was made to meet this human need. And his point, I think, Luke's main point and Jesus' main point in his interaction here, it's not so much that my disciples are famished and they're about to die. I think his point was, if David can do this with the Sabbath and you think that's okay, how much more can I, the Messiah? That's the point. He's the greater David, he's better. And that's his last statement there. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, you think David's something, you should understand who I am. This is why he infuriated the Pharisees so badly. So David interpreted Sabbath rules in light of his mission that he's going on. He says he's kept his young men pure. Jesus is the greater David and he's on a greater mission. I think that's the connection that he's wanting to make. You don't have to, if, if David was okay, then I'm okay too. That is his point to these Pharisees. All right, so moving along then, that's the first story. The next story doesn't happen on the same day. We're told it was another Sabbath but Luke's point is he's drawing us to think about Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and particularly here on the Sabbath. So there's a healing that happens on the Sabbath. Verse six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man who's there, whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, I just can't help but notice that phrase. 
They wanna see, is Jesus gonna heal him because then he's gonna be in trouble? Imagine the heart of someone who's so excited to catch someone in trouble. We all had that friend at school, right, who just loved finding people that were doing it wrong. Um, and, and to tell, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell the teacher, tell your parents, whoever. This is, this is how these guys come across, at least in this story. I, we're, gonna, we're gonna catch him on this one. They completely overlook the compassion that Jesus has for people, the care, the healing. Another thing that strikes me about this is Jesus, at this point, we haven't seen a lot of healing stories yet in the Gospel of Luke, but at this point in his ministry, it's so known that Jesus does these types of things that the Pharisees see this all forming up and they're like, oh gosh, there's a crippled person here. I just know Jesus is gonna do it again. He's gonna heal this person. Just imagine the reputation that the Lord already has at this point, even early in his ministry. We know what he's gonna do. He can't help himself. He's gonna heal this guy. What a good reputation to have, right? Just amazing. It's amazing the interplay and what's going on here. And it, Jesus, it says, verses eight and nine, he knew their thoughts and he came to the man with the withered hand and said, come stand here. And he rose and he stood there. Now, we're gonna do an equipping hour study coming up after we finish our Tough uh, Passages series. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna do a study on Christology, uh, meaning the doctrine of Christ. Um, how did Christ know what he knew and when he knew it? Um, how do we reconcile and put together the work of Christ? And Christ was truly, fully God, and Christ was truly, fully man. How do we put all that together and think through that? Um, we're gonna do that in our nine o'clock, and I'll have more to say on that, along with some of our other equipping hour teachers. So I'm not gonna, we're not gonna take a deep dive into that right now. But what we're simply told is that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And I think he knew that by divine initiative. The Spirit wanted him to know this. So he knew their thoughts, and he told the man, come to the front. Come, stand here. Now, imagine the showdown that's taking place. It's kind of unspoken at this point. He knows the Pharisees. He knows they know what he's about to do, and he calls the man to the front. The showdown is set up. And Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? Hey guys, you who are so hung up on the Sabbath, what's the purpose of the Sabbath? Should you do good things or should you do bad things on Sabbath? Question for you. And they know it's a trap. They don't answer the question. And then after that, Jesus heals the person, heals the man. Jesus was compelled to do the good. I think something of what's going on here is James 4.17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Jesus knows the thing to do is to heal the man because he can heal the man and alleviate his suffering. And so he does that. It's an amazing story. He's compelled to do that. Verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Sometimes you'll meet people and they'll say, well, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. Is that true? Is that the gospel story? Is that how it works in the gospels? Everybody that sees suddenly falls to the feet of Jesus and says, yes, you are the Messiah. Is that how it works? No, it's really not. So they see, but they do not follow him. They know it's true. They know what he's done. They know 
Later on, he raises Lazarus from the dead. They see what he is, and they don't want to believe it. So let's ask some practical questions now about the Sabbath. I know these are things that are on some of your minds. I've had conversations with many of you before. One of the stories that we have to think about here is how do we understand and observe the Sabbath ourselves? This is a big story in the Bible, obviously. It was a capital offense to not observe the Sabbath in the Old Testament. So if maybe you're a new Christian, you come across a verse like that in, in the book of Exodus, and you think, if I'm not observing the Sabbath, like this is a capital crime, like what am I supposed to do with this? So it's a big deal. We need to understand this. There's basically four different positions on understanding the Sabbath, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll just briefly run through these just so you know they exist, and then I'll tell you my understanding of what we, uh, what we understand and what we teach here as the Sabbath. So the first position would say this, that the seventh day is binding. So everybody everywhere is under obligation to observe the Sabbath. Still to this day, nothing's changed. They say this Sabbath command, it's rooted in creation, which happened before the covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant. And it's, it's pre-covenantal is what they would say. Um, so the Sabbath still is in effect um, today. Some people hold to this today. Not as many circles. The next position would be the Christian Sabbath position. They would say the Sabbath should be observed, but it's been transformed now um, into Sunday. So Saturday moved to Sunday, and we should observe the Christian Sabbath with a few modifications in the New Covenant, but we should still observe the Sabbath. I imagine many of you have grown up in this kind of context and environment. It's why, sort of at the root, um, in our country, we have all these blue laws, familiar with blue laws, um, things that are closed on Sundays. Um, still to this day, um, I grew up in Jackson, Alabama. Clark County was considered a dry county. Now about a quarter of you know what that actually means. <clears throat> Maybe more, more of you laugh than I thought would. Um, a dry county, so you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. Um, and so everybody drove to the county line, to the next county up in Marengo County, and that's where they bought their alcohol. So it was a dry county. So this is all like rooted, deeply rooted, back in, a, in an understanding of what the Sabbath is, in a Christian Sabbath position. Um, I don't hold to that position, but I have a lot of friends that do, that they would say Sundays our day for rest and worship. Um, other things need to be cut out of that day and it needs to be kept for that, um, rest and worship. So I'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Another position says this was a command and it was made only to the Jews. So as soon as the ceremonial features of the old covenant is gone, um, this is no longer binding. There's wisdom though in the work and rest principle. So the six plus one, that's what that means. You work six, you rest one. Um, even some of the reformers like Luther and Calvin, uh, they would hold to something like this, that there needs to be a day for Christians to gather to worship. But if it happened to be Thursday, that would be fine too. As long as kind of by universal agreement, we say there's a day when we remember, uh, we remember Christ and we worship. So there's wisdom in the six and one principle. Um, but the command specifically was only given to the Jews. Lastly, and this is my view, the fulfillment view, and I do believe that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. I do not believe it's binding on Christians today. I say that, and then I wanna quickly say, I think there's great wisdom in the six-in-one principle. 
the principle of rest, the rhythm of rest and work. We need that. The Lord has instituted that. It's wise. So I believe that's completely, completely true. But we need to understand that I don't think the Sabbath is binding on us today. I encourage you all, I encourage us often to be in corporate worship, to treat Sundays as a special significant day. That's not because of the fourth commandment necessarily. That's because Jesus defeated death and he's raised from the dead. That's because you're forgiven of your sins. I think Jesus defeating death and being resurrected is pretty good reason to make this a big rock on your calendar. It's, you're forgiven in Christ, you have eternal life. Well, where else would we wanna be on the Lord's Day? Um, so Christian worship, I think, has been transformed um, into this Lord's Day, a celebration of the gospel. In the early church, we don't have a ton of insight into this, but on the early church, it does appear that soon after the resurrection, it was the first day when Jesus was raised from the dead, and the Christian church began to meet on the first day of the week. And so that's why we, carrying on that tradition, meet on the first day of the week, and we come together to remember the gospel. That's what we do. That's what Sundays are for. Um, so it's not a legalistic thing. Um, I think this is how it works. We're talking about the Old Testament law. I found this image very helpful, and maybe you will as well. You can, once you take the Old Testament law, and it's not the greatest picture in the world, it's from a book. Um, I didn't, my artwork, you would be able to tell um, <laughs> if it were my artwork. Christ and the new covenant, some are transformed, like the Sabbath. We have this sustained rest in Christ, Hebrews 4. Some, like adultery, they are maintained. We see this carried over, it's repeated. In the New Testament, some like building codes. There were ancient building codes. They are maintained but strengthened even that you should care for your neighbor. And then unclean foods, some things like this are annulled completely. Um, Jesus said it's not what goes in a man that defiles him, uh, but what comes out, it's your heart is the issue. And so when we're coming to the Old Testament law and underneath now the law of Christ, we run this through this prism and ask the question, what difference does the work of Christ make? And this is a, it's, it's just a fantastic study and some thoughts for us. So on the Sabbath specifically, I just wanna give you two verses that I think are helpful for understanding why I land where I do, and hopefully this is at least something to think about. There's only one place where Paul directly says the word Sabbath, this is Paul. Um, in his letters. Colossians 2.16, it says this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. I think the most straightforward reading of this is Paul is saying you don't have to observe the Sabbath anymore. I think he would also say, but you can, but you don't have to. That's the key. And then also in Romans chapter 14, one person esteems one day as better than another. He doesn't say Sabbath, I think it's in the background, while another esteems all days alike. So, hey, Sunday, Monday, what difference does it make? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to honor the Lord. And he goes on to talk about the one who eats particular foods or abstains from particular foods. You can do so to the glory of God. So, you can observe the Sabbath for the glory of God I cannot observe the Sabbath for the glory of God if we both have a clean conscience. 
Now, here's, here's where this gets, I think, the, the beauty of the Christian conscience is it allows us to bump into each other um, and have differences of opinion sometimes, and that's okay um, on these secondary matters. Paul could have, so there's two questions in view here in Romans 14. One, is one day more special than another day, meaning holy days, feasts, Sabbath, things like that, and two, can we eat whatever we want to eat? Are there any dietary restrictions for a Christian, not for your health, but for a Christian, to be a good Christian? Paul could have just said, he could have answered that question in one verse, right? Nope, could have been the shortest verse in the Bible. Um, no, no, don't worry about it. He didn't do that. He actually wrote a chapter and a half on it, and then he wrote three chapters in 1 Corinthians. So he, he takes a lot of care because you need to understand how to deal with people in the context of a local body who have a different conviction about one of these matters than you do. I'll give you an example. So, if you were raised in a home, and I know this will resonate with some of you as well, probably the same ones who understand blue laws. If you were raised in a home and you were absolutely convinced and you were taught that it is a sin to go out to eat on a Sunday, some of you probably were raised in that environment, or at least you were aware of that. You know why? Because you're forcing that person to, eat, to, to work on the Sabbath, and you shouldn't participate in that. So we're not going to go out to eat because that person has to work in order to serve me food. If you're absolutely convinced that that's the right position, I would say, by all means, don't go out to eat today. If that's your conviction and that's your conscience, I don't think you have to restrict yourself to that. But... If that's your conviction and conscience, the last thing I want to do is encourage someone to violate their conscience. That's, that would be wrong. All right, so a lot to think through um, with that, but the Sabbath is so, so significant and important for this. So observing the Sabbath. So my view is you don't have to observe it. My view is also that the Lord's day is really important and work and rest are really important. And I'll leave that for you to work out in God's grace to do. So let's talk about some application of this. And this is where this could get a little bit, as, uh, as they used to say, we'll go to meddling a little bit in your lives. Applying the Sabbath. I have four categories, and these overlap, but think through it together with me. To the lazy person, my encouragement for you is start working, all right? You can't take a break if you haven't started, right? I, like, breaks are for people who do things, okay? So last thing in the world that I wanna do is give you permission to go home, kick back in the chair, and not do anything with your life because I'm Sabbathing. It's like, well, it was a six and one, like, right? Like six work, one not. So understand that. I'm not trying to give anybody excuses for your bad work ethic. So to the lazy, you need to start working. Next, for the workaholics, for the workaholics, some of you need to stop working. You just need to stop. You need to put it down. You need to close the computer. You need to turn off your phone. You need to use do not disturb. You need to hand your, your phone to your spouse and tell them to hide it from you. Um, you, you, gotta, you gotta stop. Um, you gotta stop. You can't keep tension on the bowstring all the time. Um, you just can't. You're not designed to work that way. I think that's part of the beauty of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift by God to a, 
slave group of people who were working seven days a week, sun up to sundown. All of a sudden, they have this new establishment, and he says, you get a day off. They're like, what? <laughs> a day, like a whole day? Really? So they, were, they would have been blown away by this new economy that God has designed for them. It's a gift. And although I told you, I don't, I don't think we have to like rigidly follow the Sabbath as it's prescribed in the Old Testament, I think there is great wisdom in this. We've got to stop. Nobody can work all the time. Only Jesus gets his whole to-do list done every day. You just got to remember that. He's the only one. So we've got to trust the Lord enough to stop. Um, would you have trusted the Lord enough to not harvest that just one last piece right before sundown of grain? Would you have trusted the Lord? Could we trust the Lord? We could always make a case for more work. I've said enough on that. Next, to the worriers. I know this is super unhelpful advice, but stop worrying, all right? It's like my advice I, I give to my daughter who swims uh, competitively. I always tell her two things. I say, one, don't breathe underwater. Um, and then right before the meets, I just say, swim faster, right? And so it's super unhelpful. But I don't know anything about swimming, so it's the best I got. So uh, stop, stop worrying. Um, you need to hear that, though. Uh, Jesus very specifically said, don't worry, don't be anxious. Um, you need to hear that. And I think this, in the context of the Sabbath here, we spend a lot of time worrying and thinking and working on things that aren't reality. We've fabricated all of these things that we have to do. We have a reputation that we have to uphold. And we've, we've generated all this and, and put this on ourselves, and so I think we've contributed to this. So I think there's a tight relationship here between the workaholics and the warriors um, a lot of times and just by way of personality. These are typically people on the positive side that get things done in life. Um, these are also the people I think that just can get, you can get so in your own thoughts. Um, the gospel's the answer for both categories, right? Gospel's the answer. Jesus has done enough. He's done enough. Lastly, to the legalist, and it, maybe this, uh, maybe we wouldn't define ourselves as this, but maybe the Pharisees, to those who just love the system, love telling other people they're wrong. I hesitated to use this term, judging, stop judging, because it's such a popular trope today. Um, we use this in, in a way that maybe is unhelpful, but I think it fits still. I don't want to I don't want to have culture steal a word that's actually helpful for us to think about uh, from a, for, for this. They were so concerned with the legal code that they couldn't see the human need and the human deliverance and the alleviation of suffering. They couldn't see it right in front of them because they were so concerned. Did he do it right, the legal code? I have been around people, maybe what used to be called the fundamentalist circles, and it seems like some people, their favorite thing to do is tell everybody they're wrong. It's like just this great joy to bring correction, critical spirit. It's almost stifling. And it can be very stifling for new Christians as well. And sometimes you'll hear people talking, you're like, I don't know all those words. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. I know I probably slung some people off the boat this morning in a quipping hour. Um, I don't want to shut down conversation, though. Um, we... we we care greatly about doctrine. We care greatly about saying it right and getting it right. But we also need to understand there is massive amounts of grace with the Lord. And so for you, for those people, we need to stop. 
Uh, stop doing that. Stop being that way. The two purposes of the Sabbath. One, remember God's the creator. Two, remember he's the redeemer. You didn't create yourself. God created you. He has a purpose and plan for you. Part of that plan is to sleep sometimes, to rest. One of my mentors used to say the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is take a nap. I follow that advice often. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. He's the creator, you're not. He's the redeemer, you can't redeem yourself. You can't work enough to redeem yourself. You just can't. It doesn't work that way. Trust him. Trust the gospel to redeem you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and this interaction of the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, what a compelling story. Series of stories, really. These controversy stories and them questioning the authority of Jesus and just seeing the way that Jesus was so gentle and kind and yet he was confrontational at times and he showed the Pharisees where they were wrong. He used their own scripture. He redefined terms and categories for them. He's careful to nuance between what is actually scripture and these legal requirements, these fence laws that they had set up. Uh, so Lord, we wanna be able to do the same and we recognize the challenge for us to think through these things well. Lord, I pray that if we find ourselves in any of these categories here today of those who just can't stop working or maybe those who need to be motivated to work a little harder to examine our own work ethic, I pray that you would use your word, use your spirit, show us these areas, Lord. Father, if there's some here and maybe they're just not redeemed in Christ and they've never seen their need for Christ and maybe they are legalist in the technical sense of they're trying to justify themselves by their works. They're trying to do enough good to be accepted. It's never going to work. It, it will never get them there. And that's why they feel this significant lack in their lives is they're trying to work and it's not working. So Lord, show them their need for grace in Christ today. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.